And I'm going to read uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Um, sorry, chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 10 in a minute. It's a big chunk. It is a big chunk. But we can do this, guys. Bear with us. Uh, let me just remind you where we've been. We're into our third week looking at this letter written to churches across the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. But haven't we seen already that this is relevant to us? That God speaks to us by the power of the Spirit through his word. And last week, as we were working through chapter one, we saw that, that the norm for the Christian life, the melody for the Christian life is both joy and suffering. We will suffer. We're not excluded from suffering. We will suffer as God's people, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. We saw last week that the resurrection gives us hope. Those who are born again are born again into it. Let's see if we can remember. Born into a living hope. That's what we have as God's people, a living hope. And we are looking forward to an inheritance with God, a future with God when we will be with him in his presence for all eternity, in his peace. And that inheritance is being guarded for us by God. And we are being guarded by God for that inheritance. That is what is coming for those who are born again. But what about now? How do we live now? As we wait, as we hold on to that future inheritance, which is coming, it's guaranteed for us. How do we live now in the waiting? Well, let me read our portion for us this afternoon. And here is the hope that we would see this this afternoon. As we wait, God's people live holy lives in an unholy world. 1 Peter chapter 1, picking up in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly, From a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, 
But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. We hold on to it as our hope, Father, and we hold on to it as the means of you changing us, helping us in this moment, but changing us, changing us to be more like Jesus. And Father, as we work through your word this afternoon, we pray that you would impress it on our hearts, that you would shine the light of the glory of the gospel into our hearts and lead us to see more of your son. That's what we want. We want to see more of your glory, Jesus. We want to see more of who you are. We want to understand more of what you have done. And as we do, Lord Jesus, lead us to worship. Lead us to love you. And lead us to love those around us. Give us your heart, Jesus, we pray. Jesus, we thank you that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask by the power of the Spirit that you would change us for your glory and for our good. Amen. Amen. And we see over the last few weeks as we just looked a little bit about the context of this letter. And looking at the situation of the Christians that Peter's writing to, we've seen that the Christian life is hard. It, it almost attracts opposition. It's hard. We're not immune from suffering. We're not immune from trials. If anything, we are living in a world and increasingly becoming uh, so. We are living in a world that is hostile towards Jesus. And the temptation for those that Peter is writing to, and this temp- the temptation for us as we find ourselves in the same situation, the temptation is to hide away. Like we have this future hope that's coming, right? So let's just wait for it. Let's hide away. Let's play the part that we need to play. Come to church on a Sunday. Come to gospel community on a Wednesday. We'll call ourselves a Christian, but really we just kind of keep in our holy huddle and hide away and we wait. We wait for either Jesus to return or for us to go to be with him. And folks, I think we all share this this, uh, same experience post-pandemic. We're tired, aren't we? Like, it's not just me, hopefully. Like, we're tired. We're exhausted. And I wonder if you found this, that that our homes have become a place of retreat. And you must find that, like, our homes are this kind of comfort blanket this place of safety and we become so used over the last 18 months two years to retreating into our homes that it feels really difficult stepping out of that now and trying to get back into the groove of opening up our homes and being together and not just that it's hard to be a christian just to live the christian life because we've been so used to insulating ourselves behind our doors like i was um, just a few weeks ago i was out for a meal 
with some new friends uh, that I've made in a cycling group that I'm part of. And we were out for a meal down the road on Lark Lane, and we didn't know much about each other. We were just getting to know each other, and we were in uh, Nono's, which used to be where we met and used to be part of the church. It used to be where the kids would go, and um, it was basically the, the church school. And the guys were talking about, did you know that this building used to be a church? They have no idea what I do for a living and we're kind of chatting around it. and then the conversation got on to, to how good it is that we've moved beyond Christianity how good it is that we don't believe in all of this stuff anymore how good it is that we progress beyond thinking that there is a God and I'm sitting there thinking okay this is interesting and as we're getting to know each other the question starts to go around the table so what do you do for work what do you do for work and it's coming around to me and I'm thinking I know what's going to happen and it comes to me and I tell them I'm a pastor. They didn't quite understand what a pastor was. So I had to lie lower and say, I'm a vicar, I'm a minister, and that kind of thing. And then they got it. And one guy literally said to me, I've got no interest in that. Tell me what you did before you were a minister, and then we can talk. It's tough, hey, guys. And it isn't just in our daily life that we feel just the hostility and the difficulty of being a Christian. Perhaps the temptation to retreat into the safety of our own lives and our own homes is felt most, uh, most kind of heavily and most tangibly when we're suffering. When we're walking through seasons of trial. When we're battling with sin, which I know all of us are engaged in. Like we're all battling with sin and I know just specifically for Liberty Church, we are all engaged in seasons of suffering and trial. And the temptation is to shrink back and retreat. Is that what we do until we take hold of our future inheritance? Or is there a better way? Peter helps us to see, folks, there is. The passage that we just read, I know it was a long one, but I wonder if you noticed how it was bookended. The start and the end of the passage it kind of brought us to see that God's people are holy. Did you see that? Verse 16 and then chapter 2, verse 9. We are called to be holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. Verse 16 and then back into chapter 2. You are chosen race of royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's people are called to be holy. That is what it looks like for us to live here and now. It looks like us being people who walk in holiness, living holy lives in an unholy world. Now, when we hear that word holy, our mind probably goes to moral purity or or righteousness. And that is what it means. Like there is a sense in which being holy is to be morally pure, to be righteous. But also the Bible talks about holiness being, being set apart, being set apart for a specific purpose, having an element of, of just sacredness to it. That's how you see it through the Bible. Purity, righteousness, and being set apart. That is what God is. As God is holy, that is one of his attributes. He is set apart. He is different. He's pure and he is righteous. But it is not just God who is holy. Way back in the beginning, that is how we were created. Back in Genesis, right at the start, God created us in his image. We are created, we're created in the image of God and we were created in the image of God so that we could have community with him, communion with him and so that we could show the world how good he is. But we know, don't we, Genesis chapter three, not satisfied with being created in the image of God. Adam and Eve want to be God and so they rebel against him. 
And God rightly and justly exiles them from Eden. Eden is this sacred space where God communes with his people. And God takes them outside of that space. They can't be in the presence of a holy God anymore. And so he takes them outside and they sit and live under the right judgment of death for their sin. But haven't we seen already in this letter that Peter has written that God has made a way. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the resurrection, he has made a way to bring us back in. God's people are born again. And as we're born again, our image is being restored. And Peter already, he's been banging this drum already. He wants the, the people that he is writing to to understand this is who you are. Right the way through the letter, we're going to hear Peter remind the, the people that he is writing to, this is who you are. Don't forget who you are. Remember who you are. Have we already seen that even just in the first couple of verses of chapter one? And he does it again now. This is who you are, church. You are holy. As God is holy, you are holy. Don't forget that. In the midst of hostility, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of sin, remember that you are a holy people. If you are born again, you've been made holy by God. And it's as if he is kind of leading the people who he's writing this letter to, to say, walk in those shoes. That is who you are. You are holy, so walk in those shoes. Like some of you have had the privilege of seeing my feet. And if you see my feet, you would, um, they look like ballerinas' feet. And that's not a compliment. If you've seen ballerinas' feet, you'll know what I mean. Like ballerinas' shoes are kind of woven and, and wound so tightly that it literally breaks their toes. And my toes are like, they're a mess. They're all over, over the place. And the reason is, when I was younger, I'm a, um, one of four children, the youngest, the bottom of the pile, grew up in Birkenhead. Mom and dad didn't have much money. And so what would happen is my eldest brother would give me his hand-me-downs. So I'd get his shoes, I'd get his, all of his clothes. The problem was, he's smaller than me. He's got size nine, he had not size nine feet. I had size seven feet when it came to playing football, but I had to wear his footy boots. And so I'm squeezing my big feet into these size seven feet, and they just wouldn't fit. And my feet are busted up for it. Like, they're all over the place. I was wearing the wrong shoes. Folks, I wonder if some of the apathy and some of the, just the tiredness and some of the constant contention with sin that we have and the, the miserableness that we feel from that and the exhaustion that we feel from that is because we're walking in the wrong shoes. It's because we're going back to a life that isn't ours anymore. When God is saying, you are holy, walk in those shoes. If you want to know the way to joy and satisfaction and peace, walk in the way that I've set before you. You are holy. Paul, right at the start, in verse 13, he says, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded. The picture he's calling us to there is not to shrink back and to forget who we are. He's reminded us that we are a holy people. And that picture, preparing your minds for action, some of you will have a footnote in the bottom of your Bible. It's an interesting one. It says, gird up the loins of your mind. The picture is this, right? So we don't, we don't kind of, um, it doesn't translate very easily. But back when Peter was writing, men would wear um, clothes that, that would have almost like a dress around the bottom. And if you wanted to get somewhere fast, like ladies, you can sympathize. I hope that wasn't a generalization, but ladies, you can sympathize with me. Trying to run somewhere with a skirt on is difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm, it's obviously is difficult. And so what they would do is they would pull, if they wanted to get somewhere fast, they would pull up the, their skirt and then they could run a bit faster. Like that makes sense, doesn't it? Peter is calling the people he's writing to not to step back, but to step forward. Get ready to go. 
Don't just sit and wait. Don't just retreat. Don't just hide away. Yes, life is going to be hard, but pull up your skirt and get ready to go. Walk in the shoes that are yours. Don't retreat in in an unholy world, but live holy lives in that unholy world. And as you do it, you will get to enjoy communion with God. And those around us will see the goodness of God. Live holy lives in unholy world. I just want to share with us in the rest of the time that we've got three ways in which Peter encourages us to do that in this passage. How do we live holy lives in unholy world? Well, I think that the first thing Peter calls us to is just to slow down and listen. And listen to who you are. Verses 13 to 21, he just reminds them gently again. Brothers, sisters, this is who you are. I know you're feeling the weight of just the struggle of life. I know you're feeling the struggle of the brokenness of this world around you. I know that you're contending against sin. I know that you're feeling hostility in the world as you try and live as salt and light. So just listen to who you are. Let me warm you and remind you with who you are. See, ever since Eden, ever since the beginning, God has been wanting to do that. Remind us of who you are. You are made in my image. God delighted over what he created. Do you know that? He delighted over humanity when he created us. But ever since Eden, there have been other voices trying to convince us that we are who we aren't. So Peter says, listen, number one, you are children of God. Verse 14, he reminds them they are obedient children. Verse 17, he reminds them they have a heavenly father. Like these folks fear the culture, they feel isolated, they feel disconnected. And so what a warmth for him to remind them, you are children of a heavenly father and no one is closer to a father than their child. And Peter's trying to warn them and encourage them with that. With God the Father, you have safety, you have care, you have provision, you have love, you have kindness, you have goodness. And in verse 16, you see that he is a responsible father. He doesn't just let you wander into foolish living. He will will keep you on the straight and narrow. If you are struggling in this life, if you are feeling the weight of just the hostility of the world, if you are feeling the weight of the brokenness of, of the world, if you are struggling against sin, if you are born again, feel the warmth of the encouragement of God saying, you are my child. And he loves you. He's not embarrassed about you. He doesn't hate you. He's not impatient with you. He hasn't forgotten you. He delights in you. You're his son. You're his daughter. Listen, you are children of God. Secondly, you are redeemed sinners. See this beautiful picture in verse 18 to 21 of the work of redemption that God has done through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. You are redeemed sinners. Has this interesting story back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel 6 of the Ark of the Covenant coming into the the gathering of God's people. Some of you know the story of the Philistines have stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And this is like the holy the holy um, uh, piece of furniture that would go in inside the Holy of Holies and it, it just oozed holiness. 
It had inside the Ten Commandments and, and it was revered. And it's been taken away from God's people. And David, King David, manages to bring it back. And as they're bringing it back, it's on the back of a horse and cart. There's oxen at the front. And the oxen just stumble a little bit. The cart wobbles and the ark's about to slide off. And this poor guy, Uzzah, just steps out to stop it. And in an instant, he's struck dead by God. Now, if you read that in isolation, it's kind of like, oh, God, that's a little bit heavy. That's a little bit harsh. Like he was just trying to, he was doing the right thing, wasn't he? Trying to stop it falling to the ground. But actually when you see in the whole kind of picture of what God is doing and who he is and how holy he is and how sinful we are, it makes so much sense. You see, God sees it would be better for that to fall on the dirty, filthy ground than to be touched by a sinner. It would be better for his holiness to come into contact with ground that has animal feces on and has been trodden over and over then for a sinner to touch it. See, the problem is, folks, without God, we are more unholy than we know. We are, even though we like to think that we aren't. We're all sunny side up. I'm not as, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. You know, the latest um, fad in the Forsyth house is four in a bed. Anyone seen it? It's not, it's not what you think it is, honestly. It's actually a very kind of clean um, um, uh, uh, program on Channel 4. The principle behind it is there's four B&B owners or hotel owners. And they all get to go to each other's hotel and you inspect each other's hotel. And then you mark each other out of 10 in terms of hospitality and facilities. And see, I can see I've got you there already. It's on, it's on the 4OD. You'll love it. Um, and cleanliness. And what you find is they go into these pristine hotel rooms. There's nothing wrong with them at all. And they're lifting up the, the mattress and they're finding like the tiniest hair. Right, number two for, for cleanliness. Got to knock them all the way down. Folks, that is how we see ourselves. We think we're white walls. We think we're, we're so good. We think we're not as bad as them. Maybe just that little hair or that little bit of dirt. You know what we're more like? Walking into that hotel room and... Someone's let in some squatters to come and live. And they've graffitied all over the walls. And they've smeared feces up the walls. And they're refusing to come out and they're playing dirty music and watching filthy things on the telly. That is who we are more like, folks. Then read verse 18 with me. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, that is who we were. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Outside of God, we are more unholy than we would care to imagine. And so God has intervened, and he's given the life of his perfect son, Jesus, in exchange for our sinful life, in exchange for the judgment that we deserve, death. He has exchanged places with us and God has ransomed us. And not with a little bit of, of okay, I'll, I'll give that much for them. He gave the thing was, that was so most precious to him. The most precious commodity in this universe is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what was given for us, folks. God did not hold back. Can I just kind of undo a little bit of bad theology for us? It's Reformation Day. So I'll go there. 
We love to say that we are saved by grace. That is true. But often what we do when we say that we're saved by grace is that we, we picture ourselves as being so wretched, so unworthy. We think that God is just not interested in us at all. Like he doesn't want us at all. Like we're so sinful and we play so much on that. Now that is true. But so is how much he loves us. Surely the fact that he has given what is most precious to him to buy us back shows us how much he loves us. Yes, we are all those things, but doesn't the fact that those things are true show us how much he loves us? Folks, listen to who you are. You are children of God and you are redeemed sinners. And allow those truths to warm your heart into the second of our encouragement, which is this, to love How do we live holy lives in an unholy world? Well, firstly, we listen to who we are, and secondly, we love. See that in verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3, for Peter, the rational response to the redemption that God has brought about is love. And not just any kind of love, not airy-fairy kind of love, but in verse 22, he calls it a sincere love, a brotherly love, a kind of familial type of love, an earnest love, a love that comes from a pure heart. This is a holy kind of love. Remember, holiness is about being set apart, standing out. That kind of love stands out. Like, when was the last time we looked out into the world and saw that kind of love? Sincere, brotherly, earnest, from a pure heart. If anything, when you look down at chapter 2, verse 1, it's more like what we see there. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That's what we tend to see. uh, Peter says, don't live like that. That isn't who you are. Those who are born again will love with a holy love that is sincere. That is like loving your brother or sister. It comes from a pure heart. And you can do that. Why? Because the love that God's people have sprouts from his love within us. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. I don't know whether you've ever come across um, um, invasive species, Japanese knotweed, hogweed, Steve, the engineer at the back's nodding his head. In my old job, I used to come across this stuff all the time. Japanese knotweed, a lovely looking plant, lovely kind of pink and white flowers. You'll see it all around you. It was our enemy number one. So I used to build stuff, like strong stuff, concrete. It does grow, actually. Um, there you go. That's if you've been on social media this week, concrete grows. Or actually, what, what happens when you uh, throw these, or you don't throw the seeds, the, the plants kind of blow them into the, anywhere they want to go, they get underneath the concrete, and they will bring down whole buildings. True, isn't it, Steve? These little seeds are full of unexpected potential. And so it is with the seed that God plants into our hearts. Peter says that God's word is planted in us. Verse 23, the word that is planted is imperishable. That means it won't dissolve, it won't kind of be removed, it's, it's there to stay. Verse 2, it's eternal. Uh, verse 24, sorry, it's eternal. Verse 25, the word that is planted in us is good news. We have planted within us, folks, the gospel. That is God's story. God's story that he's bringing sinners, redeeming sinners and bringing them into his presence for all eternity. Dealing with our sin at the cross and through the resurrection of his son. That message, that word is planted in our hearts. The message of God has been planted with us. And the message, do you know what we could sum this message up into? I love you. 
That's what God's saying in here. I love you. That is the message that is planted within us, folks. And that means we can love in unexpected ways. We can love in radical ways. We've already seen how unlovely we are, and yet God loves us. And so we can do the same. Think about it. The same word that spoke creation into existence. And just let that blow your mind for a minute, okay? That word. The same word that is holding everything together. That word is at work in you. That means we can love in crazy ways, folks. And I've seen it. I've seen it this week. Even just this week in the life of Liberty Church, in our small family, I've seen it. I've seen you love in ways which are otherworldly, ways that can only be explained by it as God's love working within you. There are some of you that are suffering in the life of this church. And unbeknownst to you, other people have been meeting and gathering and praying for you. Just praying for you. There are people suffering in the life of this church and they are beneficiaries of some fantastic meals that are coming up this week. Amen, Mark and Julie, pumpkin soup. There are people who have been moving in with other people this week because they've had problem with rodents. Folks, I know there are people in the life of this church who have just put out a text to say, I need a hug. And someone has got in their car, traveled down the road, given them a hug and gone again. That is the power of the word of God bearing fruit in our lives, folks. And as we do that, a world is looking on. We are showing the goodness of God. And I want to encourage us, keep going. Keep loving like that. Keep allowing the word of God to bear that seed, to bear that fruit in our lives. Feed from and feed on the love that God has shown us in the gospel as it works in our heart. And that also means, folks, that we can love in impossible ways. A person that you're struggling to forgive because the love of God is at work in you, you can forgive them. The kindness that you're struggling to walk in because the love of God is at work in you, you can express kindness in those ways. That just impatience that you're struggling with, you can be patient because the word of God is working in your heart. And if you are struggling with that, ask yourself this question. Am I feeding my heart with what is good? At the start of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Peter says that we should long for pure spiritual milk. You know, milk is not a nice to have for a baby. They don't choose whether they want it or not. They have to have it. It's a necessity. And for those who have been born again, we need spiritual milk. We need to drink on the goodness of God that we find in his gospel. And Peter says that it is a pure milk. It's without additives. And so in Peter's day, people were corrupting the gospel, adding to it, taken away from it. Peter says, go for the good stuff. Go for the pure stuff. And there is stuff in our day, folks, where people are trying to corrupt the gospel, (laughs) add to it, take away. There are things that are being held out to us. And people are saying, this is good. Walk in this way. And Peter says, push that to a side and take hold of what is good in his word. Drink on the gospel. And in verse 3, we see when we do, when we taste it and see that it's good, we'll just want more. We'll want to go back for more. How do we live holy lives in an unholy world when we listen to who we are, we love, and where is all this heading? Well, finally, in verse 4 to 10, we live. We live holy lives. I know how I'd love to sum up all of the passages that we've read this afternoon. I'd sum it up with this. God's people, Liberty Church, those of you who are our guests this afternoon, if you are born again, be present, 
and be pure. In this world around us, be present and be pure. You know, to be holy, that isn't our job description as Christians. To be holy is to step into the eternal plan of God for him to be present with his people. Let me just read verses four and five again. As you come to him, that is Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Way back in the beginning, Adam and Eve were placed into the Garden of Eden and this was God's sacred space. Eden was where heaven met earth. And Adam and Eve were given responsibilities to work, to keep the garden, to rule over it. And most of us will know how things rolled on from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to chapter 3 of Genesis. Sin enters the frame and it removes them from the presence of God because of his holiness. But God doesn't give up on humanity there. Throughout human history, God has been given his people a sacred space. It starts with with, uh, the tabernacle. This tent that God's people carried through the wilderness and then it grows into the temple Solomon builds with the holy of holies and you have this sacred space, this place where heaven meets earth and God uh, gives his people priests, those who are set apart, those who live holy lives and he gives them the same mandate that he gives Adam and Eve to work and to keep. The priests are representatives of God to the people and representatives of the people to God. The priests act almost as a gateway a gateway to to God, a gateway to the people. And in chapter two of this letter that Peter writes here, Peter is leading us to see right away from chapter one that because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, God is bringing about a profound movement in his purpose. We're no longer Do we have to travel to a sacred space? No longer do we have to work our way to a temple or work our way to a tent. No longer do we have to rely on a priest to go between us and God. Peter says now the temple is you. The temple is the church. The temple is God's people. You are the sacred space. In verse 5, you are the spiritual house. And he shows us that it is Jesus that holds it all together. He is the cornerstone. He is the one that shows us how to live in a good way. He's the one who holds God's people together. And he says we are the spiritual house and we are priests. We are now the gateway between God and humanity. And just listen to this. That means that where we are, Because we are God's spiritual house, because we are the sacred space, where we are is where heaven is meeting earth. In this poorly lit room, which smells a little bit funky, some of you I've never even met before, heaven is meeting earth. that is true folks we can't retreat we can't stay in our homes we can't just ride this out until Jesus returns or until we go to be with him we need to live holy lives in an unholy world I want to call this church to be a people who are present and pure be 
Being present means that we need to be amongst the people, folks. How can I say as an aside, this might be an unpopular take. I don't think we should be the people who go home this evening, shut our curtains, turn the lights off and pretend we're not home. I don't. Now we can talk about that after. We can have pizza at ours and talk about the intricacies of Halloween and wherever you want after, but I don't. I think God's people are salt and light. Not turning our lights off and hiding away. We are present in the places that God has called us to be. And we are pure. Just like the priests would do all that they could to to stay away from sin, to, to keep clean, and so do we as God's people. I need to encourage us, and you know where God is provoking you by the Spirit, you know what this means for you. Flee from sin. Put sin to death. Be done with it. You are a holy people. Be present and be pure. Because, folks, in verse 7 of chapter 2, there are those who still don't believe. There are those in verse 7 who are rejecting Jesus. There are those in verse 8 who are offended by Jesus. There are those in verse 9 who are in spiritual darkness. I'm not sure there is a, a more vivid, tangible, harrowing picture of life outside of God than darkness. And that is the reality of our friends, of our neighbours, of the kids knocking on our doors, of our colleagues. We can't retreat, folks. We need to be present and we need to be pure. Liberty Church, this world needs Jesus. So can I encourage us to get up our lawns and go and be present and to live pure lives put sin to death love with the love of God and as we do know the joy of what it is to be who we were created to be walking in our shoes being holy as God is holy let's pray